Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed. I'm your host Richie Belling and today delighted to be joined by Vicky Lan of the Speculative Sandbox podcast. It's a fantastic show which sees Vicky joined by a fantastic array of guests to unpack a fantasy trope or a sci-fi trope such as dystopian governments, parallel universes, ghost therapies and interplanetary travel. You can listen to it on pretty much every podcast streaming platform and do check out Vicky's website, which has loads of really great resources on it too. So in our chat, Vicky and I talk about specifically the epic quest trope and how you can look for inspiration in our real world to to breathe new life into them and find original angles. We also talk about other tropes like resurrections and mentor figures. I also share the results of um, a poll I did quite a while ago now, a couple of years, which looked at the most hated fantasy tropes. And that might give you some ideas on what to avoid. We also talk about some great examples of authors who have twisted classic fantasy tropes or or found new and original angles like uh, Nicholas Eames and Kings of the Wild and a little bit of George R. R. Martin as well. Before we dive into that chat, I just wanted to wish you a very happy festive period. I hope it's been peaceful with lots of time spent with the people you love, the people that matter. And if you bang into your writing, I hope you get a nice bit of time to yourself to, to do a bit of writing and, and make some progress on your stories. It's been a fantastic year for the podcast. I'm hugely grateful to everyone who listens to the show. It really does mean an awful lot. And to hear from you guys, let me know that what we're doing with this podcast is is helping you and encouraging you and inspiring you. That's what keeps us going. So as long as we keep helping and you keep listening, we'll, we'll carry on doing it. And we've got a really exciting year ahead to look forward to. We've got a new part, well, blown partnership with some top publishers, like a new robot. Um, we've got an interview lined up next uh, January with the brilliant author Stephen Orion. So, fingers crossed, you'll be seeing that one soon. And we'll just continue to bring on specialists and experts in all different fields that will hopefully give you knowledge inspiration and ideas to for your stories and as long as it keeps helping you we'll keep on doing it so if you don't want to miss any episodes be sure to follow or subscribe if you really like these episodes and the show please uh, give us a quick rating on the spotify mobile app or on itunes and if you know of anyone who may be interested uh, a quick share goes a long way and we really do appreciate that. So thank you very much if you do share this on social media or with anyone you think may enjoy the show. And if you want to get involved with our growing writing community, check out the link in the description. We've got about 250 odd people in our Discord group at the moment and we've just launched our first wave of critique groups. So these uh, writers, there's about 30 in total. So we split them into groups of five. So there's about seven or eight groups. And everyone's partnered up based on the genres that they write, how often they want to meet, uh, time zones for logistical purposes. And now these, there's all these groups forming. 
in in the group in in our writing community. So if you want to join an online writing group, everyone in which everyone is helping each other achieve their goals, then check out the the link in the description to join the, the writing community and get onto the Discord server because it's the uh, is really blowing up at the moment. So I'm amazed how it uh, how much it keeps taking off. Now it's time to dive into this brilliant and fascinating chat with Vicky Lan as we deconstruct a bunch of classic fantasy tropes. I'm thrilled to welcome to the Toolshed today for the very first time, Vicky Lan of the Speculative Sandbox podcast. Vicky, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, nice. Thank you very much for, for being here. Vicky, um, your podcast is all about deconstructing tropes that are found in sci-fi, fantasy, and supernatural fiction. Examples include dragons and zombie outbreaks. Or, and I, I noticed that you do cover quite a few world-building-related topics as well. And I overall, from what I've listened to so far, it's, it's a truly excellent podcast. Really informative. Learn loads. And um, got lots of great reviews, and there's already loads of episodes out on there already. So, I mean, how how have you found the whole podcasting business? Oh, well, thank you. First of all, I really appreciate that. Um, podcasting was really interesting because I started it when I was in a writing slump, and I realized I needed a community to just talk ideas. You know, think about like a, a writer's circle or club where you get together and you workshop. Hey, I've got this idea I'm working on. And, and then they come up with a brilliant idea and then you take that home with you and you write it down. And that same exact energy is what I wanted to create in a podcast. So I had some friends, luckily on Twitter, on writing Twitter, who were willing to kind of take a risk with me on the first couple episodes. And we just had fun with it and it just kind of took off from there. So I feel very lucky and fortunate to have this community. Yeah, it is a fantastic community, the the podcasting one. The only reason I keep doing these is because people listen to it and keep emailing and asking for, for certain topics and stuff like that. So it's it's very much community driven and it sounds like you're enjoying that the same thing with your one. Yeah, absolutely. There's great creative energy to talk to people and people have such great ideas. I was looking over this season's materials and I'm just so thankful to be able to talk to some of the guests that I had uh, because they're just amazing. And t- they took the time to share that with me and our listeners. So it's great. Yeah. Awesome. And the reason why I wanted to have a chat with you for the show is because you do specialize in workshopping tropes and it's not something that we've spoken an awful lot about it is something that i have touched about on my website and at one time i did do a poll of a uh, hundred well a good few hundred readers and shared the results on my blog which i'll ask you about later because when we were chatting before organizing the chat today we both kind of fell upon a particular trope which i've been thinking an awful lot about recently and that is taking classic epic fantasy quests and giving them a modern spin or applying modern or real world challenges to the epic fantasy world. So rather than setting off on a voyage to rescue a princess, uh, I mean, our characters might might instead 
embark upon a quest to take out an unhinged dictator, with, you know, like a bit like Putin. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, I, I try and think an awful lot, like in Farias Lorenz, I did include like the two main leaders of the war and nations were basically just like feuding amongst themselves. And that is like a real digger, mm-hmm. what modern day warfare is like. It's just individuals making these decisions that are affecting thousands and thousands of people. So to kick things off, I thought it'd be a good starting point to understand what that quest trope is. Yeah. So the epic quest, when you're looking at just a traditional standard epic quest, you have a place of origin and you have a reason for leaving that that place. So think Frodo and his band of friends leaving the Shire to ultimately get to Mount Doom. Um, you it, always, usually there's a collection of characters and they have a goal, save a princess, slay a dragon. Um, I also think of the video game Legend of Zelda. That's a really good epic quest. And it's not always just about the end goal. It's also about the points along the way and the lessons you learn there. So when they are in the dark forest or when they're spending some time with the elves in Lord of the Rings, those are also the point of the epic quest. And for readers that are getting into it um, that are maybe expecting, okay, how do we get to the end goal? And they're wondering, why do we keep making stops? Well, that's the point of the epic quest is that growth over time. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important parts of it, isn't it? It's not... It's not a, a series of grand plot points. It's a character growing or characters growing as they sort of the faced with massive challenges that they, they would never have encountered if they'd have stayed exactly where they were in that sort of origin point, like you say. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite examples of epic, classic epic quests? Well, I was trying to think of examples of epic quests that I really enjoy. Um, one that I have to recommend is called Kings of the Wild by Nicholas Eames, I think yeah. is how you say his name. Excellent. Kings of the Wild, W-Y-L-D is how you spell wild. Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a fantastic book for many reasons, but uh-huh. go on. it's so, okay, I have to totally geek out over it though, because there, the not only is this following the same epic quest template, but they have done something amazing about like medieval fighting. They have equated it to band culture. So yeah. you have this band of fighters. They're literally like all these synonyms and allegories for musician bands. So you got your weapon, which is your guitar, and they have gigs, which is when they get hired to go kill a troll or whatever. And then they battle it out in an arena, just like a concert. It is so cool. And not only that, incredibly humorous, wonderful characters. It made me laugh. It made me cry. Highly recommend that story. Yeah, it is a fantastic book. It it does. It's sort of the quest is quite simple, I think. It's just like one character's daughter is in trouble. And yep. these guys, this this band, they were like uh, the kings of the wild. They, they, they were legends, but they're all a bit old now. And mm-hmm. Which is another brilliant twist, I thought, because... Most of the time we've got these young whippersnappers, you know what I mean, going out on yep. quests and, and instead we've got this more the sort of the aging generation. Yes. So that was good. But like you say, it is it's the way it was done, I think, brought a lot of originality to, to that trope, do you think? I think so, absolutely. Because I think what happens too is there's in America at least, the rock the rock of like the eighties 
it's kind of a dying out genre and we have a lot of pop and you know processed kind of you can tell that money has kind of taken over the productions of music and so when you have like the metallicas of the world like it's very indicative of that time frame and so you have the people from that time frame are kind of they're aging and they can relate to the characters in the story. I have a coworker and another podcast uh, guest that I had, Brad Alice. He is, loves metal. And as I'm reading this book, I keep texting him. I'm like, you have to read this. I don't think you understand. Like this book will speak to like a lot of your experiences and passions. And I share it with as many people as I can. I completely agree. Have you got any other examples that you, you've found have really sort of spun the classic trope? I think an interesting interpretation of an epic fantasy epic quest, which might not be very fantastical, but kind of is, is Forrest Gump. Because the, the movie from the nineties, I believe the the movie isn't about where he ends up in the end. Like they kind of establish the stakes, you know, Jenny and his love and eventually they end up together, but then they don't even have a lasting relationship, right? She dies because she has AIDS, I believe. Yeah. Um, but it's about the journey along the way and the character building and all the people that he meets. He goes to the Vietnam War. He works on a boat and it's fan. It is technically fantastical. If you think about the span of impact that he has and the people and like the famous people that he meet yeah. meets like the fact that Elvis is inspired by him, I believe at one point, <laughs> um, that is a, an interesting way. If you really think about it, it's an epic journey. In that example, like Forrest Gump, he doesn't really change much as a character. He's quite static and all of that, which is interesting in itself because most people, as they sort of go through these things, like if you go to the Vietnam War, most people, well, a lot of people anyway, came back with psychological disorders through mm-hmm. the horrors that they'd witnessed there. In in looking at Forrest Gump, he was just sort of someone, it was like water off the duck's back. Yeah. Uh, and that's interesting in itself and, and twisting a bit of a, a trope. But again, I think, I don't know, it depends on what you like, isn't it? Because I'm I'm really enjoying this new wave of, of modern fantasy where mm-hmm. characters are suffering from mental health problems like hacking someone's head off with a sword there is repercussions to that on a psychological Uh level it's not just something that you just do and then job done off you go like because then battlefields would have been horrific we we do cover quite a lot of uh history on the show medieval history in particular so some of the things we've heard like it's it's craziness yeah and I'm glad that that they're introducing that because I had another guest that talked about the importance of mental health and the impacts of that. I think Brandon Sanderson, I believe, touches on that. Yeah. Um, and it and it's refreshing because I I I don't know if you've read Game of Thrones. I feel yeah. like there isn't that in Game of Thrones. I think they show impacts of war and violence, but I feel like there's a lot of like leaning into violence and it's like a celebration of violence if you kind of look at Game of Thrones from a very overarching standpoint and it's nice to be able to kind of like hey no this actually has a lasting effect um yeah. it's not just chess on a chessboard it's people and it messes with your brain yeah most definitely I think to to get the most out of like a an epic fantasy story and you've got that quest um in mind we were talking at the beginning about characters going on these journeys and it's that emotional journey, mm-hmm. I think, which is, is so important. So it's what what is going to keep a reader sticking with the story for 
what, 150,000 words. Because yeah. if, there's, if there's no emotional attachments to the characters and stuff like the characters are flat and static, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's yeah. the point? What's the point? I've reading? read stories where like I could feel like, all right, location one, location two, location three. And I'm just like moving through the paces at that point. And it's yeah. really important to have opposing forces kind of blanketing those plot points so it doesn't feel so predicted. Yeah. Have you um, encountered any useful techniques for achieving that in your writing? I don't, well, I certainly work on character development. I don't think I have any epic quest formatting yet, but I do in general really like to play with reader expectations. I get a a lot of inspiration from Jason Pargin, who wrote John Dies at the End, um, where a sentence starts and you're not sure how it's going to end, or really playing with people for your chapter cliffhangers and your chapter starts. I really enjoy doing that because it's playful, it's almost theatrical, and that kind of re-energizes people as they kind of start a new chapter and you know kind of rather than feeling like you're slogging along it's like oh that's interesting um and inspires them to keep reading so that's probably the closest i don't write epics but that's probably the way i like to keep momentum going yeah it is yeah and do you focus a lot on the key characters emotions when you are looking at character developments and the conflict and the the plots of the story yes so my books are, my stories, we're currently shopping one of my manuscripts right now, is own voice. So there's an added focus of diversity and perspective. And so for me, it's about honesty, but also because this is probably a reflection of me as well. I like to be like comedically candid about awkwardness. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people want to present their best foot forward and look like the badass, you know, hero. But I'm like, I fully embrace that my characters are like, I don't know what's going on. This is ridiculous and weird, but I am 100%. It's, it's more about like, how do they overcome these challenges? Because in everyday life, we overcome something that's un, unusual or, or not clear to us. Think of like a new job that you start, or if you're dealing with like a new medical condition and, and you're facing a whole new world, like these are all relatable things. Yeah. I just, I just like that candid, that candidness. Yeah. Yeah, uh, me too, completely. I think when you're writing first drafts as well, you can kind of, there's so much to, to think about. You kind of gloss over certain aspects of, um, of character developments and like that kind of emotional reaction to things that are happening in the story. And um, something I developed to try and make sure that I'd never miss it is, uh, it's called, I call it character plot. And so what I basically do is draw a graph like an X mm-hmm. and Y axis, and it's just a line graph. So I'll just draw um, little dots on on the graph about, which represent the sort of the points of conflict, I call them. So basically what happens, and then based on how the character reacts or the outcome of that with the, uh, the character's interaction with that source of conflict, it's either a positive or a negative response. And then if it's positive, then I'll, I'll plot it high on the graph. And if it's negative, I'll plot it low. And then you draw a line in from your next point of conflict. And then if that's positive, and then you, all of a sudden you see, see the, these sorts of highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of this character's emotional journey as they are engaging with all these different points of conflict. So I always do that now whenever I'm writing anything. And 
it's basically when I'm I've got a visual overview of that that emotional reaction, and I, it's that emotional reaction I think that makes the character real and yes. engaging to follow. So, yeah, that helps me an awful lot. I'll put a link in the description if anyone wants to check it out. It's great too because you're you're essentially creating rules, which then lead to a fundamentals of your character so if you know that your character is going to react adversely or positively to certain reactions then you can start to get an idea of like what is their fundamental belief system and then they feel a lot more grounded yeah definitely so we'll just go back to that epic quest trope like we're saying one thing that like we mentioned at the start and something I always try and do is how are we put on that, at that sort of modern spin on it? And one thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the types of inspiration that you could sort of look for when it comes yeah. to putting that modern contemporary spin on things. I had some fun with this one because I was like, all right, we're... we're you can always get examples of modern epic quests in like any road trip movie um but like i really wanted to think about okay what like i haven't seen a road trip movie in a really long time so i'm like okay i need to get myself updated on pop culture like what is prevalent in today's world and so i started thinking about what are the motives for people for leaving and then what would they encounter along the way and i what they could encounter along the way just seemed easier so i I tackled that first and so in my opinion i was trying to reflect off of what could you expect to see in today's culture. And so I'm going off of, I live in Arizona. Um, so I'm going off of the wide expanse of the USA and thoughts that came across to me was coming across political rallies, women's marches, um, finding a group of influencers out in the wild, which I thought would be really comedic, (laughs) like almost like the, in Shakespeare, you have the clown characters, you know, coming across like people with huge personalities and they look really silly, but they've got a lot of courage because they're doing that out in the wild and learning from them. Then I wanted to incorporate a location that talks about an actual genuine concern that we as a society deal with. And the easiest one I could think of was Airbnb rentals. This would replace the tavern in the epic fantasy. But there are some nefarious things about Airbnbs that people have been concerned about, like hosts setting up cameras, or maybe you witness a murder. I'm not saying this happens at all establishments. I'm sure there's very trustworthy establishments, but there's been enough concerns where people have been worried about using Airbnb. Same goes for Uber um, transportation services. So things like that. I also came up with, you know, public events that mean something about the culture. Here in Arizona, we have Dia de los Muertos, which is the Day of the Dead be really cool to, you know, stumble upon something like that. And then finally, the absurdities of technology, which is, I think, what makes now interesting and unique to like past epics, where you rely on all this tech to get you on the road and going, but then your technology fails you in some way. Maybe your smart card dies. Or if this is a sci-fi epic, you're going, you're trapped in a smart car and you're going wherever your smart car is programmed to go against your will. Yeah. And so now we've inverted the you've chosen to go on an epic. Now you're like forced into an, a journey. And what does that mean for your story? Yeah. And like you say, it's there has to be a compelling reason for them to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I sort of found a bit of inspiration for okay. in um, my current work in progress. And I started writing it in the height of the migrant crisis. Okay. And especially in Europe. 
I mean, the US, like on, on the border, there was like big surgeon there in, in migrants moving up from um, Latin America, wasn't it? And other sort of more southern North American states to the US border when, I think it was when Trump was in power. And in Europe, we had uh, a massive migration from the Middle East into Europe and lots of people trying to, to cross the channel from France to England. And they were just taking like the craziest risks, like with the whole family, like kids. Wow. Yeah. Um, the whole family and like whole families were just being wiped out and like found washed up on beaches. And yeah. it was a really like moving picture of just a, a small child, maybe two or three years Boy. old, like just, yeah, just, just like drowned on, on the beach. Mm-hmm. And it, like think when you see that, you, you, you do obviously think about being in the situation and considering the risks of the risk and reward of, of what they're trying to do. It's really powerful and, and emotive. So I tried to encapsulate, encapsulate that in the character that I've created. And she's um, living in a, a war-torn country um, and it's humans fighting orcs. It's, well, my own version of orcs, not like the typical Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. orcs. Um, and the husband's being killed in the war. He was conscripted. And um, she's on her own, and the the orcs have finally arrived at her village, and she she's like prepared to leave, but she just needed that final push because she was reluctant. It's not only as she she got orcs to contend with, like this war's been going on for a year, and humanity has fallen apart, and that's what I wanted it to be like. I just wanted it like when I'm always thinking about creating conflict in a story, I just want this character to go through absolute hell. <laughs> the life has got to be nothing but misery until they mm-hmm. get to the end that's what I try and achieve with, with plotting stuff out and obviously the emotional journey is incredibly important because if a character's constantly being battered with challenges like psychological challenges then you need to really dig into that emotional reaction um, yes. and I think that's where you can find the originality in your epic fantasy quests mm-hmm. Well, your symbolism, your version of orcs being like the invading force that the main characters now have to get away from is a, is a great gateway for people to develop empathy for real world people that are running from things. And sometimes it's kind of sad that you have to use something entirely, you know, other species to get that point across. Yeah. Uh, since some people are like, you know, there's so much otherness when it comes to thinking about, you know, things happening in other countries. Yeah. Uh, I think about Life of Pi and how the entire time in the book Life of Pi, the boy is on that is on a boat, right? With animals, a zebra, a tiger. And, um, the entire time he's trying to figure out how to survive on this boat with these animals that are like this one tiger that just wants to kill him. And then at the very end of the book, it's revealed somewhat that it was actually a murderous like chef or something. I can't remember that was on the boat with him. He just used a tiger as a way of coping and. By the time you walk away from it, you realize that it was actually an incredibly traumatizing experience with people on the boat and people are hungry, wanting to murder each other and his amazing ability to survive. And then that kind of hits you. Um, maybe it's easier to swallow when you think it's a tiger, um, but the symbolism is really strong. Yeah, it's an amazing story, that Life of Pi. Mm. Big, big fan of it. So I think we've kind of covered that, uh, the epic fantasy quest there. And um, I hope everyone listening at home has found it useful. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on 
um, this research that I did probably a couple of years ago now and the results and okay. see if you you agree basically okay. Okay. so what what do you think the top result was this is the least favorite trope oh, the least favorite trope the most overdone i suppose the one that i hear from everybody is the chosen one yeah, spot on there. Is that the one? Yeah, it got the most votes. 10% of the votes overall. It was also where there's the orphan child with super duper powers. Basically, ah. the chosen one, yeah. Um, you mean Harry Potter? Is that what, the, what we're talking about? Basically, it's just any kind of sort of chosen figure, isn't it? It's just like really common in fantasy and it's like a default for a lot of people. Like they seem to okay. just start with like a chosen one trope and that's what the story's going to be about. I don't know. But... Yeah, so what did you think? You, you you completely agree with that? I think the chosen one trope is rooted in a lot of history. Yeah. And um, I unpacked this with Lucy McLaren on my podcast, and, and another writer, and we talked about that. We talked about how it's prevalent in like histories, mythologies. I mean, even real life people can apply themselves to the chosen one trope. Think of King Henry VIII, who thought that God spoke directly to him, and therefore he had the ability to change up the church and marry and behead as many wives as he wants. I think he only beheaded yeah. two of them. But anyway... Um, so I think that the chosen one trope comes from a place of truth. It's how you work with it to make it fresh. I think for middle grade children, chosen one is a really good introductory for them because it, it kind of builds in self-interest. Yeah. Um, but you eventually though, you want to move past that and create more complexities for your story. So I think the chosen one can become a pitfall if you're, you, you, create a too powerful main character um and it's just a matter of like how do you combine the idea of a main character who has a destiny to do something with other plot devices so it doesn't come off as too predictable and 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 done i guess you yeah say. nice completely agree so what did you think came second the best guess is what i personally get kind of tired of it's when the authoritative organization that you trusted actually was the enemy. Oh, that's an interesting one. But Just because I've been that. seeing it everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> Anytime there's like a really strong authoritative figure and you trust them, I'm like, nope, nope, they're going to come out as the end. And sure enough, it happened, you know, with um, uh, Captain America and S.H.I.E.L.D. being actually Hydra. You know, that's a classic example I like to use. Yeah. Nice. It was actually evil villains because they're just evil. There's no reason. Oh, yeah. And I suppose with older fantasy, it's quite common. Not as much with newer fantasy, I don't find. But mm-hmm. depends what you've been reading, I suppose. But that because came. I guess it's not interesting, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Um, so that was very close behind um, the first one. And go, I'll just ask you one more. What do you think the third least favorite trope was? Love triangles. Um, it's related <laughs> to that. Oh, really? Yeah, sort of. I'm guessing there is a r- romantic element to this. Oh. Uh, it's women who always need saving. Oh, the damsel is, in distress. Yeah, it's a big problem, especially mm-hmm. in like older fantasy. I always remember reading a Wizard's First Rule by is it. Is that good kind? I can't even remember now. Wizard's First Rules, the book anyway. I read like 350 pages of it and gave up. Because you had this character, this female character, I can't remember her name now. 
Do you have you read that? I know I haven't read that one. No, um, just in case you knew the names of <laughs> the characters. But yeah, the the there's a female character who basically arrives uh, on the scene and meets this other character, the main character called Richard. And Richard's a bit of a chosen one. He doesn't know her at the time. But this, this female character is really sort of, she's got loads of powers and she's she's quite intriguing. But she just comp- takes a complete backseat in the whole story and just becomes an object that Richard has to save and protect. Mm-hmm. And it's just so tiring. It's like, Jesus Christ, she, she, she's like a person, you know what I mean? Like she could do things on her own. Like she yeah. found Richard on her own in the first place. Why is she all of a sudden like completely unable to do anything? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I really don't like, like that is one of my most hated tropes. I think, I mean, I've been grateful that Disney's turned tail on, on that trope because I mean, that was their, that was their lean in for many, many years. But now you have characters like Moana, uh, who is now saving the day on her own and there's no love interest required yeah. because I do, I do feel like it's a mark of the time and also, um, a projection of maybe the writer's biases because, I think a lot about how back in the olden days, um, which isn't actually that old, but women, I'm speaking from um, my knowledge in America, but women couldn't, you know, take out a loan, you know, on their own. And yeah. they were entirely dependent on their husband. So key things in their life, like who they marry and such, it was a huge indicator of like what their life changes were going to be. And then you see that kind of reflected in Snow White can't really do anything about this apple until the prince kisses her. You know, um, the idea that your life is saved when a male character chooses to have a romantic, you know, um, interest yeah. in you, which kind of reflects you moving out of your parents' house to then move right into your your spouse's house and that lack of agency as set by systemic oppression. and. What I love about moving away from this trope is that it reflects that we are able to do that in the real world too, or at least I hope so. I know that that's not the the case worldwide or you know across all cultures, but just having the ability as a woman to be able to make decisions and systemically be supported, like I can take out a bank loan, I could buy my own house. The fact that that is there um, supports the ability for a woman to have her independence. Exactly, and um, I th- I, these are the kind of things that I love to to discuss in, in stories and um, I'm guessing do you, do you do anything like this as well? Like you use these like sorts of big issues in society uh, and mm-hmm. try and sort of tackle them in your stories as well. Yeah. So my stories have a lot to do specifically with cultural identity and, and intergenerational trauma. And my first manuscript is about a mother and a daughter who are going through an absolutely ridiculous situation. They're surviving an alien invasion. And the mother is a very strict, conservative Vietnamese woman, immigrant woman. And the daughter is your half-race, Americanized, raised woman, uh, young yeah. woman. And showing that intergenerational, um, I guess, interaction faced against an absolutely ridiculous humorous sci-fi scenario. And I wanted that challenge because I felt like those stories were always kind of rooted in like uh, literary fiction or women's fiction. Yeah. And I, it's important for me to have a woman's voice in the sci-fi realm. And that's actually been one of the hardest things I've, I've realized I've come across. My agent told me 
when she first signed on with me that it's either going to be a really great sell because it's a great book or we're going to come across some of those set limits, I guess, where there's just not a whole lot of women voices in sci-fi and I'm really hoping to fix that. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Some of the best writers of sci-fi are are women, so Mm -hmm. makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, So there's a couple of tropes that I wanted to ask you about in particular. And uh, one of them was resurrections or the deaths that are sort of suggested or implied. And then turns out it was just a lot of rubbish. Um, And another was mental figures. So what do you think about these two? Okay, so I have notes on the resurrection one because I'm actually planning something with it. Um, let me just find it real quick. Very okay. Cool. So the thing about resurrections is it doesn't have to be limited to just literally what we think of with the resurrection, like Jesus resurrecting after so many days in a cave. Resurrection is actually just, it's, it's, it shows up all the time in history. Um, it, it, there's tons of mytholo- mythological figures that have resurrected. Even the act of the sun coming up and setting, setting, and then overnight coming back again, that's considered resurrection. And you think of the cyclical nature of mythology and religions. It's just really prominent. And then at the same time, you have resurrection in certain character archetypes, like vampires and zombies. And it's almost like an interesting way of saying, you rose wrong <laughs> like, like whoops that, that wasn't right um kind of thing versus like yeah. be all powerful being but either way it seems like no matter how you rise you're something super you're a super version of what you were before yeah and so i i like that it's um resurrection in general is supposed to symbolize hope and rebirth um but that same exact idea being inverted to actually create fear like when the vampire comes up through the grave, you know, um, I thought that was really interesting. And then um, not only that, but if you've seen, I'm, there's, this happened so many times, but the most recent example in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, you have Wong flying over the edge of a cliff and maybe he's dead. And then later on, he pops back up and he's perfectly fine. He His character essentially is resurrected, yeah. not for because that's the point, but because that's more done for thrills and like a fake out. Um, that happens all the time. But usually though, when a character resurrects like that, it comes with hope, right? It's supposed to yeah. make you feel a certain way. Inversely, if the villain you thought died comes back, now you have a whole new level of fear. So I like how resurrection can be used as both a, a high and a low point. Um, yeah. so yeah. What do you think writers should avoid then when? The experiment with that trope. With uh, resurrections, let's see. Because it can be done quite badly, can it? Yeah, I think if you overdo the surprise, it was never, they never died. Like when people start to dissect a story and they're like, but you never did see the body though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, when Wanda got crushed by that temple, we didn't actually see her gut splattered everywhere. So therefore she can definitely come back, you know. Um, I think it has, uh, I guess, the chosen one resurrects. So now we're getting into the trope everyone hates. Um, I actually did not like it when Neo got shot up in the hallway and then came back to life when Trinity kissed him. Yeah. I thought that wasn't the, I, the, like, I was like, oh, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I got the point and I appreciated it, but I was also like, that felt a little cheesy. So I think <laughs> watching the delivery, I think one way I liked it was when Jon Snow, um, 
was killed in Game of Thrones, and my memory's fading on this one, but how he was dead and then he gets resurrected. But some people had so many theories on how he would resurrect. And I don't actually remember how he resurrected now. Is it, wasn't it Melisandre? Oh yeah, it was her, which that, then I remember people were like, oh, (laughs) that some people thought the dire wolf was going to like exchange souls or something like that. Uh, So, you know, I think, I think I I quite like that about Melisandre as well. I think I really like George R. R. Martin's storytelling and it's, Mm say quite a lot of influence in, in my own in that like different characters well I always feel with with George R. R. Martin there's like some some kind of higher force like the sort of gods or whatever um mm-hmm. playing a game yeah oh yeah um and I kind of feel that certain characters have purposes and these characters mm-hmm. are obviously searching for that purpose well some of them are um but obviously Melisandre, she got it wrong quite a lot, but she she was of the belief that her purpose was something greater, like mm-hmm. looking after the what what you would call a Stannis Baratheon, the Lord of Lights that she thought he was, or whatever. That's right. Mm-hmm. But her Did real you find out purpose, it was John or something? yeah. Well, her real purpose was just to to bring Jon Snow back to life, wasn't it? That's that right. Was, yes. And then after that, she literally just melted into the the nothingness. Like that was. Mm-hmm. That was the sole purpose of her being, and she lived. What God, we don't really know much about because it's not. We need the books for that. Them answers, but um, what she was because she was just a sort of shape shifting person, like a bit of a witch mm-hmm. kind of sorceress kind of figure. Yeah, but yeah. I found it really like fascinating that 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 seemed to be her purpose, but she didn't know it until until the time came, and she'd been pursuing all these other goals and objectives that she thought was right Mm -hmm. and she was wrong and it was only when fate put it before yeah yeah that you understand like i thought that was quite clever i don't know well it's like the chessboard right he put all his pieces where he needed them to be and you can't tell and then suddenly he makes a move and you realize it was all orchestrated yeah it's it's fantastic yeah Mm -hmm. so the other trope i want to talk about was the mentor figure Mm -hmm. i hate the mentor figure trope <laughs> uh my my the last time I talked about the mentor figure for my podcast we were talking about how they're always dying. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz it seems like the chosen one can only move on when his mentor has died. Yeah. Or where the only reveal a snippet of information. And it's oh, like, yeah. oh yeah. Like so, Dumbledore who only releases a little bit at a time just enough to get these kids in trouble. Yeah. And Gandalf who just speaks in riddles and then is killed by a demon. <laughs> It was not very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the people, you know, when you go to your parents and you're like, hey, how do you spell water? And they're like, look it up. I'm like, or you can just tell me how to spell water. And I, but we want you to learn how to look it up. I'm like, but I'll never forget how to spell water if you just told me how water was spelled. Like, yeah. that's an example. <laughs> I think that that's the, the problem. It's like, I, I get from a storytelling perspective why Gandalf only reveals snippets of information in riddles because. It'd be boring. Gandalf just turned around and was like, told you everything that you needed to know, then it, the story's done. But mm-hmm. it, at the same time, it, it jars because you, you know that he knows, but he's not telling for some reason that isn't true to the story. He's not telling us. Mm-hmm. So I always feel like it's not relatable because in reality, you would find out, wouldn't you? But 
if if the, that person knew, they would tell you. It's, yeah. I think what's more realistic is a mentor that isn't actually out for you, but they're yeah. for themselves. I think yeah. you come across that a lot sometimes. Like when you're starting out new in the world and you have like the rose color glasses and you have this great outlook on everybody and you don't realize that everyone's actions are informed by whatever it is that they're doing, um, whatever their self-interest may be, altruistic or not. And there can be really great mentors who, you know, are teachers. I, I feel like I had a lot more mentors when I was a kid and there was an actual structure for yeah. teachers. But once you go out into the real world, you start finding that they're like, not all mentors are created the same. And some mentors might actually have bad intentions, yeah. whether it's, you know, they're like, they see value in you, a hard worker. And like, I can put that person to use for my, my needs. Yeah. I think the lies of Lachlan Lamora, if you've ever read that, that's, that's got a few good crooked mentor figures in it. Mm. Um, Do you like crooked mentors then? Yeah. I just like things that try and make the trope a bit different. It's not just mm-hmm. sort of some beardy old man. Yeah. Spilling the the gospel. Yeah, I, I also like an absence of mentor figures because obviously there's we learn like humans learn in, in all different kinds of ways, but from observing other people do things and, and I suppose we can we don't need one sole figure to learn something mm-hmm. like a character who's uh, the, the the classic orphan, for example, the chances of them getting taken under the wing of someone and that's sort of educated on everything, it's it's unlikely. They're, they're going to learn from observing other interactions with people. Like there might be like an older, an older child who manages to get more food than the others and he sort of watches and observes that and then mm-hmm. tries it himself. Like there's, there's, there's lessons can be learned all over the place. And I think it's it's a, it's a bit of a cop out just to have one figure that has all the information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I wonder if a way to kind of play with that then in a in a contemporary novel is the mentor figure is actually a random self help book that you found off of like a Goodwill shelf. Yeah, and um, you perceive it to be like a a know all resource. But then what would be really interesting is as you encounter your own life's experiences, challenging what comes up in that self-help book, because self-help yeah. books are, you know, they, they they come with context and certain perspectives and bias. And it's just an easy way to visually represent one know-all source. Yeah. And maybe you lost the book halfway through the, the epic journey <laughs> <laughs> or it yeah. got burned in a fireplace. I just think of all the misguided books about dating women Mm, i see a lot of uh a lot of people rising to like giving you advice on like career success but when i listen to it it's a lot of like you gotta just want what you want you just gotta do it speaking in cliches thanks Thanks. (laughs) it's just a lot of inspirational quotes and cliches there's no substance to it like Mm -hmm. um that's the age we live in though that people do buy into that sort of superficial advice i kind of feel like that's something that we could play on as well amongst mm-hmm. all these sorts of the the lack of trustworthiness of a mentor figure and like you say there are characters who have come across as mentors and then shocked us all at the end yep I yep. think they kind of flirted with that in the Lord of the Rings the new Lord of the Rings series I won't say anything because it's spoilers but if you have seen it you might know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah 
Uh, well, it's been absolutely lovely chatting with you, Vicky. Thank you very much for giving up your time. Uh, how can we find out a bit more about you if anyone out there would like to check your podcast out or your website yeah. or your writing? So you can find anything about me if you go to vickylawn.com, which I'm sure will probably be in the notes, but for the sake of here, it's V-I-C-K-I-E and then L-A-N at, yeah. at .com. So there you're going to find some old blog posts. You'll see are my manuscripts. You'll see my podcast itself. And then if you want to find my podcast, I'm pretty much on every streaming platform. You can also look up Speculative Sandbox and you'll get the like Apple Podcasts or Spotify and the like. But yeah, I, um, my, my main goal of my podcast was to have those, you sit down and you really talk and you workshop something in your story. Um, and I, you know, look forward to more listeners if you guys like that stuff. And of course, I'm always welcoming new guests. Oh, brilliant. Well, make sure you're on there. (laughs) If you love me. And if you'd like to come back, I'd be be thrilled to have you back as well. Maybe we can talk about approaches to workshopping ideas and and stories. So that'd be really helpful. Give some advice on that. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again. And uh, thank you very much, everyone at home for listening. A big thank you, Vicky, for giving up your time to chat with me. It was a really interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed it at home. I hope you learned something new. hope it gave you some new ideas, maybe. If you enjoyed it, please do consider following us, subscribing, or giving us a quick rating on the Spotify mobile app. I don't know why you can't do it on on desktops, but for some reason, mobile is the one. But yeah, a rating does go a long way, and it's really appreciated, as is a share. So if you enjoyed the episode, you you think someone else might be interested, please do share it with them or share it on social media. And that is really helpful. We do this purely for the love of it. So uh, a share goes a long way. And don't forget, if you want to join a critique group, uh, click the link in the description to join. We've got like seven or eight groups now. So there's going to be more. It's just going to be, we're just going to keep growing and growing and growing. So if you want to join uh, a critique group that meets up every two, three, four weeks, head on over, join us. And again, I just wanted to say a big thank you for listening to the show this year. If this is your first episode, thank you very much. If you listen to every episode this year, I thank you again. I really do find it amazing that people can stand listening to me for 30 plus minutes sometimes. But I, I do constantly aim to make it as helpful as possible. It has been a brilliant year and I am really grateful to everyone who's listened the reason why I do these episodes and invite people on the show is to is purely to help fellow writers with ideas, research inspiration and I am grateful because this year I, the, the results like I found out on Spotify um, that the podcast is one of the it's in the top 5% podcasts in the world for the most shared and uh, the most followed as well and that that's blows me away like apparently people in 89 different countries listen to this podcast again that blows me away so it's amazing thank you so much and here's to an even bigger and better next year